out. Everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. And today, I'm going to be diving into the Corpsewood Manor murders. But before we jump into today's episode, I have some very exciting news that I know many of you have been wondering about for quite a while now. So as everyone knows, Joel has left the podcast, and I just want to make it very clear. I know I've probably mentioned this several times, but there are some of you out there that still are wondering, you know, what's the tea? You know, what's going on with Joel? I just want everybody to know this will be the last time I address this because there's just no reason to keep repeating myself. But Joel and I left on good terms. We're still happily brothers. Uh, He's doing well. He left the show because he just wanted to pursue some other opportunities. He's working in the IT field, technology. That's always been his passion. So he's off doing bigger, better things. And because of that, I have been producerless for the last couple of months. And I know I mentioned that I've been looking for a new producer. And in the last episode, many of you started guessing who that new producer may be. And today I'm finally revealing who my new producer, honestly, slash co-host is. So welcome to the show, my brother from another mother, Austin. Welcome, man. Yo, what's up, everybody? This is exciting to be here. I know. I'm so excited, man. Like, it's been so long that I've just been by myself in here trying not to get creeped out. And today, I'm so happy to finally have you join me. But Austin has been doing a ton of the behind the scenes work. He really helps out with the research. Uh, He helps write the scripts uh, that I actually do on the show. And I think it's super valuable to have you now in the episodes because you do go so deep when researching these topics. Yeah. I try to get everything. And, uh, you know, if I ever miss anything, uh, don't burn me at the stick. I try, (laughs) I try my best out here, you know? And also I thought you would be a great fit for the show because not only do we kind of look like I feel like we kind of do look like brothers and I feel like some people out there might even get it confused I'm like wait is this your other brother but yeah the mustache yeah and the beard, right? exactly yeah. exactly but also just I wanted to make sure that whoever I brought onto the show next really fits into what I've really created here because I know I I like the certain vibe that the show has I like the sort of laid back chillness to it I know some of you even fall asleep to lights out so I didn't want to bring somebody on here that maybe is like the polar opposite of myself like as like hey how's it going everybody you know it's like talks completely different maybe just too too jarring to, to yeah. the listener versus I, your, I don't have that. enough coffee in me to get that <laughs> yeah, amped. I yeah. Say, yeah it takes a lot to get me me that amped I mean it's just I think there's a, and I think there's also a certain seriousness to the show and a lot of the topics we cover are just so, so brutal oftentimes that I just feel like it's important to bring that level of seriousness and respect to these episodes and to have somebody that is able to deliver, you know, the content in that way as well, whoever's on the show. So I'm very excited that Austin's here. He is not going to be here every episode from here on out right now because you don't live here. Yeah, I'm actually from uh, Hamtramck, Michigan. Shout out to Hamtramck. Uh, it's a small enclave city that's actually within Detroit. Um, so yeah, I'm from Michigan. Um, I came out here. I'm just here for the week. 
Yeah. Uh, I forget how dry it is here. It is very dry. And I was like showing them my tattoos and they're like crusty. And <laughs> yeah. I'm like, God, I got to put lotion on. Yeah. It's super dry out here. Yeah, it is. I got to get used to that. But uh, no, I love it out here. It's really cool place. Um, so I'm excited to move here. And yeah, I'll be here in a few months. Um, yeah. So the hope is I wanted to bring him on because he's out here looking for places to live and all that good stuff. I wanted to introduce you to Austin because he is going to be joining the show full time come the new year. Uh, but he will probably be back out here again for an additional episode uh, around the Christmas uh, season here. So there'll be at least one more episode with him before he's here full time. And I'm really excited. I'm. It's been a kind of a solo project for me for so long. And I just feel like the show can only get better with more collaboration and having an additional voice there and having somebody who's also extremely knowledgeable on the subjects that we cover is not only helpful to me, but it's just going to provide more value to you as a listener and viewer. So super excited to have you. And today we have a a very, very interesting case um, that honestly, I don't think most people even know about Um, the, the murders that took place at Corpsewood Manor in the middle, middle of nowhere in Georgia. And just the people, the people involved with this are, are, are very interesting as well. Well, let's go ahead and just jump right into our episode here. This episode of the Lights Out podcast is brought to you by Care of HelloFresh, Hunt a Killer, and Stamps. So this case primarily centers around a very, very interesting man by the name Charles Scudder. And Charles Scudder ends up being actually a victim in this case. I think for this case to fully understand what ends up happening at Corpsewood Manor. We have to go all the way back to the very beginning with the early years of Charles Scudder. So you can really understand who this man was. So Charles Scudder was born on October 6, 1926 in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. And he came from a wealthy family. He was a great student. And he had an interest in almost everything. He loved drama, music, and art. Had a brilliant mind really, really good at science and math. After Charles graduated from high school, he ended up attending Oberlin College and Loyola University School of Medicine. Like I said, he had a brilliant mind, and of course he was an incredible student when he got degrees in zoology, languages, and chemistry. He then went on to get a PhD in pharmacology. He got married in his teens, but not a lot is known about that marriage, and it failed pretty quickly. He later remarried, though, and had four sons. They were named Saul, Gideon, Fenris, and Ahab. But his second marriage also didn't last too long. And after the death of his youngest son, Ahab, the marriage was over. And as far as we know and what we could find, we don't really know how his son died. But his death did weigh very heavily on Charles, and it began to change him. He began following counterculture ideals And he also focused a lot of his energy on his work, which interestingly enough, his work focused on mind-altering drugs. He even became the associate professor for Loyola's Institute for Mind, Drugs, and Behavior. And while he was there, he performed government-funded experiments with psychoactive drugs. At the time, the government was hoping that they could use LSD-25 to control people's minds and weaponize them. And this program, as many of you have probably heard, was the infamous program called MKUltra. 
So yeah, to fill you guys in on that, uh, your drug specialist, Austin, kicking in here. <laughs> um, LSD you know, is a substance that's normally produced in a lab, always produced in a lab. It's artificial, right? Yes, it's artificial. There's nothing natural about it. Not at all. Um, and with a big enough dose, uh, it causes distortions, hallucinations in the brain. Uh, it also makes it hard to perceive and evaluate dangerous situations. Um, I would say from experience. <laughs> um, yes, I have tried LSD and it's like this feeling of euphoria that almost like clouds your judgment in a way. Like you said, if you have enough of it, it can almost give you this like sense of invincibility in a way. Yeah. Um, but it, it definitely does distort your reality. Yeah. Um, you can be in a good or bad way. Yeah. Yeah. On who you like, are. But. Yeah. I had a friend in college, you know, just we're sitting there hanging and all of a sudden he's, uh, he's like, someone's going to stab me tonight. And we were just oh, hanging wow. out in an apartment. Wow. Playing video games, listening to music. Yeah. Definitely. And he afraid. had taken LSD. Yep. And he what convinced himself or, you know, too big of a dose. Um, oh, wow. He had somehow thought that he was, someone was just going to kill him. Wow. And uh, so we had to, I was acid sitting, you know, as I say, and yeah. I had to, uh, we had to calm him down. I said, what can I do to make you feel like you're not going to die? Everything's going to be okay. We had to take him. He really wanted to go to this fountain that was uh, a few blocks away. <laughs> so I was like, I'll take you to the fountain. We'll listen to some music. We'll lay down, relax. Sure. Eventually he, yeah, he, he came, came down, yeah. oh, calmed down. So it was good. But yeah, the, um, I've seen both good and bad, uh, uh of mind-altering drugs and i think it's you know it depends on the user totally depends on where their headspace is at when they take the drug yeah. you know how much they're taking no that's a that's a really good point yeah that's there's, there's so many stories like that i mean luckily for me i've never had uh a negative experience with any sort of mind-altering drug yeah. um because of the importance of i always learned that set and setting and mind state or everything like you don't Huge. want to do these drugs are very powerful and i mean hence why the government was trying to experiment with them because if you find the right people you know if you found a person that you feel like would be susceptible to this drug it can convince you of things that aren't real it can you know they are able to almost weaponize it in a way yeah uh, and use it against you or use you know alter your mind to then do their bidding which was kind of like in short what mk ultra was but it, it's interesting um lsd you know does kind of play a factor throughout this case which is why we're talking about it but we wanted to give you a little bit of background because not everybody's tried lsd before and i think it's important to understand the effects of it and again like it's how much you take where you're taking it who you're taking it with but in large doses i can totally see how it could totally screw with your mind. I mean, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those drugs. I, I always like to say is like, it puts you in like a thought loop. Like it puts your brain into overdrive is the best way I can describe it. It's like flips a switch in your brain. And then all of a sudden your brain's working way faster and harder than it ever has before. And if you are have negative things going on in your life, or you go to a negative place, if you're not able to pull yourself out of that or have like you did pull your friend out of that, right. bad things can't happen. Yeah, for sure. You either produce uh, Sergeant Peppers because you're the Beatles, or yeah, you think <laughs> yeah. you're gonna die. It yeah. has a very it's, you know polarizing effect. It's just, I mean, it, LSD specifically too is just such a potent drug too, and it really does. 
you know, can provide that amazing experience, but yeah. Else? And the MK ultra, I mean, that's, so what they were doing essentially, sometimes you can find a million documentaries if you really want to. Um, a lot of the times their subjects, they knew they were a part of this experiment, but sometimes they didn't know, uh, when they were being dosed. So it would just be a Wednesday at 4 PM and you're drinking your tea and all of a sudden you're like, why am I feeling like this? So there are stories of people, I don't know, crazy things happening to their test subjects and stuff. And, uh, and what, like, what was their purpose for doing this? Like, well, at least what did they tell us was the purpose? Yeah. Of Cause of course there's endless conspiracies on MK ultra and like what they were actually trying to do versus what the CIA was willing to admit they were doing. Right. It was an illegal operation, right? So it's like once it wasn't confidential anymore, it was kind of released to the public. Yeah. It's like, what is the truth? What are they going to tell you? But as far as we know, um, a big part of it was uh, when they were detaining people, they wanted to dose them to see if it would act as a truth serum. Like they would just start spilling all their secrets. To hopefully be used by the military against our adversaries. Exactly. To extract yeah. information from yeah, which I huge. can see the thought process behind that, but it's also totally fucked at the same time. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. God, yeah. Just like unknowingly giving people large doses of, and then how, like, how would you know you're even getting the, the right information? Because what are people going to fucking come up with if they're tripping yeah. on a heroic dose of LSD? Yeah, yeah, like, you never yeah. know what they're going to come up with. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's funny. They thought it would be a truth serum when it's a mind altering drug, you know? Yeah. It's kind of yeah, It just shows the understanding around, especially psychedelics at the time too, like yeah. trying to use them for, you know, they're really used, supposed to be used for this purpose, but you know, we're going to try to weaponize it and make it, <laughs> make it something that we can, you know, give to people that we capture in war and things like that. Yeah, no, it's MK Ultra is really interesting. Which, by the way, um, if you want more information on MK Ultra, I actually did an episode on my other podcast, Mile Higher Podcast, um, covering the whole program, kind of from start to finish, as well as covering some of the conspiracies around it. So, if you're interested in that, it's out there. But, anyways, back to Charles. So Charles is is got a pharmacology degree, PhD, and he's working with these uh, psychoactive drugs. And what's interesting is Charles. For the time was very he just was not afraid to be who he wanted to be and who he really was he was just you know for a doctor um somebody with the, this amount of education at the time period he was kind of seen as a strange individual by by his colleagues i think he had a lot of strange quirks he would dye his hair bright blue which i mean imagine and i mean i feel like even nowadays people are somewhat it's getting more, you know, not everybody, but there are some older people um, that still kind of like look at you weird if you've got like pink hair, brown, you know. Yeah, now it's, I, I think it's become hair. a bit more normalized now to yeah. have, but yeah, there's a, definitely a stigma, you know. And you Which are, I don't even know what, what's the stigma by yeah, it? Who Just because you've changed in your hair color, what does that have to do with anything? Like, really, really, yeah. Well, it's like, what are you going to judge somebody who are wearing like a tie-dye shirt? And people do, yeah, right. You yeah. On a oh, this guy, yeah, yeah, definitely doing LSD yeah. over here with his tie dye, <laughs> exactly. Grateful Dead T-shirt, yeah, yeah. So Charles, yeah, he dyes his hair different colors. Um, he also owned a pet monkey, which I, I feel like anybody owns a pet monkey. Like you know, you you are taking on something that most people don't want to take on, and that's having a monkey as a pet. It just shows you like what you know. He was he's just such an interesting guy. Like he just liked all the things that the norm at the time would say oh that's not normal to have a pet monkey but despite having all these kind of quirks i guess he was well liked 
And people that knew him described him as brilliant, polished, and soft-spoken, but confident at the same time. And while working at Loyola, he met a man named Joseph Odom. And Joseph was born on March 27, 1938 in Cook County, Illinois. And he often went by the nickname Joey, which is how we're going to refer to him throughout this episode. But after dropping out of school in the fifth grade, Joey began getting into a life of petty crime. He was eventually arrested for an unknown crime, and he became a well-known cook behind bars. He would later take these cooking skills of his, so he must have been a decent cook, and he'd use them once he was let free. Charles eventually hired him as a live-in family cook in 1959. By then, Charles had divorced his second wife, and he lived in the family mansion on Chicago's west side with his four sons. And when Joey moved in, he cooked their meals, but he also acted as a nanny for the boys. Soon, Charles and Joey's relationship grew into something more. They eventually began a more romantic relationship, but kept it secret at the time. Because again, in 1959, being openly gay wasn't as common. And even as time passed and Charles' sons grew up, Joey still publicly acted like he was only the family cook. By the early 1970s, the sons had all moved out, and Charles had also become sick of his job at the university. And he was also just fed up with city life. He'd always talked about how he desperately wanted to escape from the high taxes and bills in the city, and he felt like his old neighborhood had fallen apart as the decades passed. He even called it an urban ghetto. Crime had increased and the city was quickly changing. At the same time, he dove into a magazine called Mother Earth News, which promotes renewable energy, recycling, and sustainable farms. Charles' parents had recently passed away and he had inherited $40,000 from his mother's estate. So at almost 50 years old, Charles chose an isolated spot in the middle of the North Georgia woods to start a new off-the-grid life with his lover, Joey. It was a spot in the mountains just outside of Tryon. It had once been Native American land. I mean, pretty much all the United States was once Native American land. But obviously they were moved off of the land and forced onto the Trail of Tears. And Charles ended up spending about $10,000 for 40 acres. And the first thing that he planned on doing was digging a 160-foot well for fresh water. He figured out how to do this from the Mother Earth News magazine. Then he cleared a small area in the forest where he and Joey planned on building a brick house by hand. The first time he saw the property with his own eyes, he hiked around the surrounding areas. So on the trail, he actually came across a dead horse in the middle of the path. It had already begun to decay. Maggots infested its eyes, and its stomach had begun to expand from the decomposing gases. The sight was obviously a grisly one, but it inspired Charles. So he decided to name this trail, which would end up being the road to where Corpse of Manor would be, Dead Horse Road. But this corpse of the dead horse, and just the surrounding forest in general, gave him the idea for the name Corpsewood Manor. It was a grim name for a house that sounded straight out of a horror story. But he thought it was fitting, as death is only a natural cycle of life. So, what do you uh, think about living off the grid? Like this? I don't know, man. With nothing to go off of, got to start with a well and everything? well, yeah. No, they don't have any city water, no electricity out here. It's just the middle of the woods. But Kendall told me earlier today, uh, you wanted to be a mountain man. (laughs) Did she really? (laughs) Yeah, she was like, yeah, Josh wanted to move out into the mountains. Yeah, no, actually I did, um, and I still do, and I will one day. We um, have a Charles Scudder, right? Yeah, here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> I think um I think off the grid is really cool because I know for me like my dream would be to live somewhere completely sustainable and obviously nowadays with technology it's a lot easier to achieve that versus when Charles is out there but I think there's something I mean I love nature and I think living off grid just allows you to truly live in nature and not be distracted by all of the the technology I mean technology I it's so weird because I went to college for technology <laughs> and I used to be like technology's biggest fan but as time has gone on and as I've gotten older I've started to realize like the way that technology specifically like AI and robotics are going kind of scares me a little bit and I worry that as humans if we become too disconnected from nature that that could ultimately spell the end for us or the end as we know it um and you know this idea that humans will eventually merge with the machine and become cyborgs and all these things is like used to be things of science fiction movies but it's quickly becoming Slowly reality becoming real yeah i'm sure you've seen like the the boston what is it mit yeah. robots that yeah. can do backflips and stuff yeah that scares me yeah, that terrifying. scares me and like tesla just uh tesla at one of their recent press conferences or something unveiled a humanoid robot that they're building tesla's terrifying. gonna yeah it's like a human size robot that will cost like 25 grand that will be programmable and basically be i guess yours your buddy your assistant no thanks i'll uh i'll save the twenty five thousand. but i mean it's it is scary but i mean i get that's the way things are going you know but then even just to think about charles going out there uh no landline no phone no landline or no computers that he had out there you know he was like completely disconnected he had to um he was writing people letters because that was the only way he could yeah. communicate with like people. running into town yeah, exactly. and stuff and like get supplies. Yeah. yeah, like I don't know if I would go to that extent. I think for me, I would like to live just out in the middle of nowhere with privacy. Like privacy has always been of utmost importance to me. And when it comes to like where I live and where my family lives, I just I think having privacy and and yeah, no off grid living definitely is something i'd be interested in one like i've always told kendall that like one day i just want to retire like once this is all over i want to you know my kids grow up i just want to like retire to somewhere secluded um in the mountains and i, w- I would love to live that life in a cabin and like yeah. have that you know just be surrounded just by nature and, and chair animals. on the porch yeah, smoking yeah, a pipe. yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> be that guy chopping firewood <laughs> yeah. like my day's simple or have some animals you know have some horses or donkeys or something you know the, yeah. that that would be my dream but i i get why people do it you know like there's there's shows on um discovery and, and history channel of people that have these high paying jobs in corporate america and then they just are like screw this leave it all and move to the middle of nowhere yeah and this dude had a huge job at loyola right was, you know crushing it mk ultra the government was yeah. giving him money and yeah. he's like nah, i'm out of here yeah and I, well and i think it was like a almost like a spiritual thing for him too and that's what it is for me too is like i think nature and nature provides nature i like to think of nature as my temple my church it's a place where i worship and it's where i feel most connected to everything is when i'm in nature and i think charles was kind of realized the same way of like i'm not you know i'm not really fulfilled doing what i'm doing and obviously starting to see the issues with what he was doing and so getting away from it all and really being able to also just pursue living life the way you truly want to live it 
And I think that was difficult at the t- in the time period because he's, you know, a gay man. He's, you know, very, um, he's just kind of out there of who he is and he's not afraid to, you know, just be himself. And I think realizing that if I go out in the middle of nowhere, I can really create my own, you can kind of create your own universe in a way. And that's the beauty of it is that no one knows where you're at and you sounds can really nice. do whatever you want. Yeah, like you, and nice. that's kind of cool is like in, in the city, you can't do whatever you want. You can't people there's so many people around that they're going to notice that you're doing something that is not the norm or you know maybe they question and and it becomes this big deal but if what's the easiest way to get ultimate freedom yeah go just where no one will find you yeah. yeah yeah just Absolutely. go where no one will find you agreed so on charles 50th birthday he resigned from his job at loyola he bought a brand new jeep and a small camper and he set out for his plot of land in georgia He left most of his possessions behind, but he brought along Joey and his two big Mastiffs with him. What's interesting about Charles is that he actually named one of his Mastiffs Beelzebub, which I have used this name before. I've actually talked about this. It's a demon in ancient text, uh, but it's also another name for the devil. But the other Mastiff was named Arseneth, which is named after an H.P. Lovecraft character. Charles also brought along some antiques, books, and his personal golden harp. Once they got out to his property, it would actually take them about two years to build the main section of the brick house. And since he had no room for his harp and antiques, he had to keep them outside for a while. Even though he was trying to shed his life of possessions, he just couldn't give up the golden harp. It was really his way to entertain guests. And he was known by his friends and family as a great player. There is a clip of him playing the harp um which i'll play real quick there's actually a clip of him reciting a poem and playing the harp and i'll just insert a little clip so you can hear threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears did he smile his work to see did he who made the lamb make thee tiger tiger burning bright in the forests of the night what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry charles was known by his friends and family as a great heart player and he would often recite poetry while playing, like you just heard. After they moved, he wouldn't let his surroundings limit his playing, so he decided to bring it with him. So imagine being a hiker or a hunter out in these woods, and all of a sudden you hear a harp playing, and you know you start getting closer to the sound, and all of a sudden there's just this man just reciting poetry. But it's also kind of creepy to think about too, especially if you didn't know that it was there. But just you know, think about there being out there at night, <laughs> Sounds like something the dark like a woods. fairy tale, know, but like right? a creepy fairy tale. It really does. But that, that was who Charles was. Charles also put up a sign on Dead Horse Road that read, Beware of the Thing. He was also a big fan of the Adams family, but some people took the sign seriously, and they believed that something strange, in fact, did roam the woods. But as years passed, the main house was finished. They also added one more building to complete their manor which was a three-story building made of wood and brick, and they called it the chicken house. They kept a group of chickens on the first floor, and on the second floor they stored canned goods, 
and a large library of pornography. On the third floor was where they entertained themselves and guests, and they called this the pink room. In other words, this was their pleasure chamber. Throughout the property, Charles also added stained glass with pentagrams and other artwork that involved the devil. And you're probably wondering, what the hell? Well, Charles introduced himself as a Satanist, and he became a formal member of the Church of Satan not long after. So, of course, Charles Scudder and the manor soon became the talk of the town, and locals began spreading rumors. Because, again, this is like, I believe, near the height of the Satanic Panic, and people, you know, they heard, they just heard Satanist, and of course, freaked them the the fuck out i mean they thought there's devil worshipers living out there and there's kind of a misconception with like if you're a satanist it doesn't mean you're worshiping the devil right yeah that's i think that's the biggest thing that a lot of people don't understand especially if you've never looked into satanism which you know i get why a lot of people don't but the majority of satanists belong to some form of of satanism which charles belonged to the church of satan which is uh was church of satan which actually was started by anton Levey. And Anton LaVey had a very specific version of it. And in fact, what's interesting about it, and most people don't know, is they don't believe in any uh, supernatural entity. Like, they don't believe in a god or a devil. They don't believe that the devil even exists. Yeah, it's almost a uh, religion, an organized religion that is anti-religion, basically. Right? Yeah. It's kind yeah. of strange. They're yeah. really, like, atheists. Yeah. Um, and Organized atheists. Organized yeah. atheists, and they use... They kind of use the devil and pentagrams and all of these um, phallic symbols and things like that as a way to kind of like throw it back into everybody else's faces for yeah. judging them. Yeah. Like, it's like punk rock. Kind of, yeah. You know? Yeah. It's kind of like, fuck you. You yeah. know, like, you know, we, we laugh at the idea that you think that we're these devil worshiping like evil people, but in fact, we're not at all. And we're just people who believe in. You know doing what they want and not not being told how to do things or live their life or what to believe in and that's just all this in a very very simple terms obviously i'm i am not just to clarify i'm not a satanist i do not belong to the church of satan or anything like that i do find it interesting though and i think it's very misunderstood yeah it's it's more of like a we want to understand it you know yeah it, it's important especially in the context of charles scudder that we understand what type of Satanist he was because the rumors at the time was that here's this guy, this weird dude out in the middle of the Georgia woods and he's doing all these satanic rituals inside his home. And you know, he's probably doing all this weird, creepy, evil shit. But as far as we know, Charles obviously came from a background of psychoactive drugs. And um, if you look into some satanic rituals, you know, there's, a lot of it involves sex and taking drugs and things like that. So that sort of behavior did take place at the Corpsewood Manor, specifically in Charles' pink room. This is where he really could be free about his sexuality, and he really liked this about the Church of Satan, that they really reinforced this, as this was one of the few religions that respected the idea of every consenting adult's right to sexual activity, which again in the 70s, being a gay man or, you know, having sex with the same sex just wasn't accepted in the mainstream. So Charles liked the church's idea of doing what makes you happy as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. 
He also liked displaying satanic images around the manor to get a rise out of people. Because again, that's why they do it is it gets a right. It's like proves their point by doing these things. But this was all in character for Charles. It's the very same reason he dyed his hair and he once had a pet monkey. Charles Scudder loved to draw attention. So Charles and Joey quickly became known for their Satanism and their counterculture lifestyle. They were also known for drugs, sexual freedom, and homemade wine. This is what attracted countless rumors around the small town of northern Georgia. Curious young people in the small town had nothing better to do than drive up Dead Horse Road to Corpsewood Manor and see what was going on. The age of consent in Georgia was 14 years old at the time, but supposedly Charles only let people in who were 17 or older. And in the fall of 1982, Charles first met a man named Tony West and another man named Avery Brock. And Charles had no idea that these two young men would change his life at Corpsewood Manor forever. So let's dive into who Tony West or Samuel Tony West was. So Samuel Tony West, who went by Tony, was born on August 11, 1952. And he grew up in a poor family and early on his father seemed to be cursed with bad luck. Even before Tony was born, his father suffered a serious injury in a train accident which led to neck and back pain for the rest of his life. The family's main income was his father's disability checks and the odd jobs he picked up through the years. When Tony was only 10, his father tragically died in a fiery car accident. He had actually lost control of the car as it slid off the road and smashed into a telephone pole. The car was mangled and it took the firefighters hours to retrieve the body from the car. His neck was actually shattered and he died almost instantly. But this death was a huge blow to the family. Not only was it traumatic, but now the family had no income. And his mother struggled to raise the children after that. With no father and no money, it wasn't long before Tony got into trouble. When he was 13 years old, he was looking after his two-year-old cousin one day. When he peeked inside the closet, he found a pistol inside of the house and began playing with it. And these types of stories never end well. While messing around with the gun, he aimed it at the two-year-old's head, not realizing that the pistol was loaded. But Tony was about to find out in the worst way possible. He squeezed the trigger, thinking the gun was not loaded, and the crack of a gunshot tore through the house. The poor two-year-old died instantly, and Tony was arrested. Since the killing was believed to be accidental, the court didn't charge Tony with murder, but they sentenced him to a psychiatric treatment facility for five years. Not much is known about his time there, but when he was 18, they let him go free. With no direction and nowhere to go, and no money, he turned back to a life of crime and he was quickly arrested for theft and thrown back in jail. Again, not much is known about him for the next few years of his life, except for a few run-ins he had with the law for petty crime. His own family even called him a bad seed. But in 1979, when he was 27, Tony got married. One night during family dinner, he got into a heated argument with his brother-in-law, Kenneth Todd, who had just escaped from prison. Tony got heated and he pulled a pistol out and shot Kenneth four times. The small 22 caliber bolts hit him once in the stomach, the head, and twice in the back. They rushed Kenneth to the hospital where he survived his injuries. Because the caliber was so small, the bullets were small enough that they didn't really do too much internal damage. Later that night, around 4 a.m., Tony turned himself in to the local sheriff's station. While they booked him, they realized that Tony was supposed to be serving time in the Hamilton County Penal Farm. 
for a different crime he had committed years before, but somehow he had escaped, unnoticed clearly in 1974. What's worse was that when they charged him for shooting his brother-in-law, he pleaded no contest, and the court didn't even add any more punishment for him escaping his last sentence. How crazy is that? Totally different time. They only sentenced him to three years in prison, and this time they locked him in a high-security prison so that the guy couldn't escape again. But he wasn't forced to serve the rest of his original sentence. After he went to prison, his first wife divorced him, and after serving a sentence, he was let free. Just like when he was 18, he had no direction, nowhere to go, and again, no money. So he ended up moving into an old trailer home that his sister owned. This was just a few miles outside of Tryon, Georgia. In the trailer park, Tony met a 17-year-old named Avery Brock. Avery was born in 1965 in Walker County, Georgia, and just like Tony, he went by his middle name, Avery. This wasn't the only thing they had in common, though. Just like Tony, Avery had also lost his father at an early age. When Avery was only about seven years old, his father died of a cerebral hemorrhage. Avery's mother eventually remarried, and he had an absolutely terrible relationship with his stepfather. He was very strict and cruel, especially to Avery, and at times he physically abused him. By the time Avery was 17, he had dropped out of school and found odd jobs around town. He chopped wood and mowed lawns. He did anything he could to make money so that he could finally become independent. And the people he worked for always said he was reliable and hardworking. Right before he met Tony, Avery was kicked out of the house. And now Tony and Avery had a few more things in common. Again, no direction, nowhere to go, and no money. Avery did everything he could to survive on the streets. He occasionally stole food from the local grocery stores to survive. Since Tony saw he was struggling, he offered to let Avery move into the mobile home with him, so Avery gladly accepted. Although there was no electricity or water, but at least he wasn't out sleeping on the cold streets. By this point, Avery would take anything he could get, and he was thankful for Tony. Despite having a 13-year age difference, Tony and Avery formed a close bond. And soon enough, they also found out that they had one more thing in common. Their drug use. They both loved huffing a mixture of paint thinner and glue. They didn't have any money, so drugs were hard to come by. But huffing was one of the cheapest ways to get high, and they would huff anything that had a powerful solvent. Throughout the drug-hidden underbelly of northern Georgia, they eventually heard rumors of this place called Corpsewood Manor. The property's owner, Dr. Charles Scudder, had become known around town as this eccentric character, and he gained popularity around the town for a strange house out in the middle of the woods. Avery came by a few times and enjoyed the warm hospitality. He even got permission from Charles to come have a few drinks and hunt on his property whenever he wanted. Charles was absolutely welcoming to everyone who wanted to visit his home, and he often invited people by writing them personal letters. For the people he was sexually interested in, he often added explicit details to his letters and even added a few nude photos. He never pushed anyone, though, to go inside the chicken house or take drugs. Everyone was free to do what they wanted. Charles' goal was to create a safe space for people to open themselves up to new experiences. Avery eventually convinced Tony to go up there with him to get a few free drinks. But Tony didn't know what kind of place it was exactly. When they got there, Charles brought them to the chicken house and took them up to the third floor. Again, this was called the pink room. No one was allowed inside the main house as this was strictly for Charles, Joey, and their two dogs. 
Plus, Joey mostly stayed in the main house. He had recently suffered serious injuries from a car accident that affected his head and limbs. He was never really the same after that car accident. And when Tony, Charles, and Avery got inside the chicken house, Tony noticed the chicken house had a sign-in book. It also acted as a diary for everyone who had been there. They would sign their names, left notes, and there was also a section in the book to mention their sexual preferences. The three of them hung out for a while and drank some watermelon wine up in the pink room. And since the homemade wine usually came in several gallons, they got pretty drunk. At some point in the day, Charles approached Avery, pulled down his pants, and began giving him a blowjob. Tony just sat there watching. And when Charles noticed Tony eyeing him, he also offered him a blowjob. But Tony declined. After the night was over, Avery and Tony drove back to the trailer park in silence. And after a while, Avery finally broke the awkward silence. And he told Tony that he swore he wasn't gay. And he told Tony to never tell anyone about what he had seen. Once they got back, they just went to sleep. And by the next morning, Avery was even more worked up about what had happened the night before. He told Tony that he thought Charles intentionally got him drunk and took advantage of him. But Tony had known Avery for a while. And he had had his own suspicions about Avery's sexuality. And he knew that Avery had been up to the manor a handful of times before. So this probably wasn't the first time that Avery had engaged in sexual relations at Corpsewood Manor. But that morning, Avery kept ranting about how he wasn't gay and Charles had taken advantage of him. Tony thought he might have just been embarrassed about the whole thing. But things got even more heated when Avery began threatening to kill Charles. Then he tried to convince Tony that he should help him by saying that they had a bunch of antiques inside the house that were worth a bunch of money. Avery knew that Tony was motivated by money. And as much as he wanted money, Tony had only been up in the pink room. So... He had only seen the chickens, food, and pornography, and there definitely wasn't any valuables. But Avery insisted that there was a huge fortune inside the main house, and he convinced Tony that Charles and Joey were rich, and they stored their money somewhere inside of that main house. The more he sold the idea to Tony, the more he bought in. Then Avery followed an interesting train of thought to convince him further. If Charles loved being off the grid, he probably didn't trust banks. And if he didn't trust the banks... His fortune must have been stashed in the main house. The more Avery talked about the idea of robbing and killing, the more he wanted to take the plan even further. He then told Tony that they could kill Charles and Joey, dispose of the bodies, and then take over the house for themselves. Again, they're off-grid. It's going to be difficult for them to get help. And in his mind, it wouldn't be that difficult to pull off. Tony had no objections. And this plan almost sounded too good to be true. So on December 10th, 1982, Tony and Avery drove up into the mountains towards Corpsewood Manor. This was the day that they planned on taking over the manor for themselves. As they drove along the road, Tony asked Avery where he had stored the rifle. Avery said he actually left it back at his mom's house and that he didn't need it, as he had brought along his knife, and this was enough to get the job done. Tony then reminded Avery that the manor had two large mastiffs roaming around the property, and obviously, it's going to be tough to kill two large mastiffs with a knife. So Tony turned around the car and headed home. Yeah, I don't think Avery understood uh, how big mastiffs uh, are, maybe. Yeah, clearly not. I mean, if you think you get, I don't even think I could take a 60 pound dog with a knife, let especially alone. one that's going to try to take you out for infringing on their property. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a tough. Yeah, 150 pounds, no way. You can guarantee these dogs are trained to oh, yeah. protect the property. Oh, too. yeah. Yeah, no, that wasn't going to go well. 
And because of this, they delayed the plan for a few more days. The next time, weirdly enough, they brought a few people with them to act as witnesses for some reason, which don't really understand how this makes a ton of sense. Maybe to, I don't know, try to get some more help if they needed it. And then what have, you know, now their accessories after the fact or something. Yeah. Dirt against them. I don't really or understand. Or if they, I don't know, is it to have like an alibi, like a fake alibi? Like, no, we were together and. Oh, you know, that's so a good I point. Don't, I Maybe. Don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's weird. There so, was no real answer I could find of why they brought them up. I mean, how many people are like, oh, I'm going to go commit a murder. Let me bring yeah, some witnesses hop, with hop me. along, yeah. Yeah, like, let's bring some friends with us. So they brought along two teenagers named Joey Wells, who was Tony's nephew, and a woman named Teresa Hudgens. And on December 12th, they all headed up to Corpsewood Manor. That morning, Avery had grabbed his dad's old 22 rifle this time, and he hoped that when Charles saw him with the gun that he would think he was just there to go hunting, like he had offered a few weeks before. But when they all reached the manor, they acted like they just wanted to come and hang out with Charles. So they entered the chicken house and climbed up to the pink room on the top floor. There they helped themselves to his wine and they even huffed some paint thinner, glue, and a few other chemicals. Avery eventually snuck down and returned to the car. He grabbed the rifle from the trunk and headed back to the pink room. When he got back into the room, no one seemed to care that he had a gun with him as they were all pretty drunk at this point and too high to care. Charles just kept up his conversation with Tony like everything was normal, but Avery decided it was time. He pulled a hunting knife from his belt and then charged Charles. He held the blade to his neck and told him not to move or he would slit his throat. Charles just asked what kind of game they were playing and he even said he would play along. Some believe that Charles knew what was going on and what was about to happen, but he was trying to defuse the situation by, you know, just pretending that they were playing this trick on him or a game of some sort. But Avery grabbed a nearby bed sheet lying on the floor and used his knife to cut up strips of cloth. He then used the cloth to tie up Charles in the pink room. Teresa began screaming at this point, but Tony and Avery told her to keep quiet. Avery then proceeded to interrogate Charles, asking him who else was in the house and how much money they had stashed away. Charles promised him that they didn't have any money in the house, but Avery clearly thought he was lying. Little do you know, Charles was actually telling the truth. Charles and Joey barely had any money at the property as they lived off a bit of savings from his inheritance, but really they mostly lived off the land. That was the whole idea of moving out there. But at this point, Avery was in too deep now. He wouldn't accept the fact that there wasn't anything in the house. So he crawled down the ladder and ran over to the main house with rifle in hand. After rushing inside, he saw Joey cleaning up after dinner. Joey stopped what he was doing when he noticed Avery standing at the edge of the dining room with a rifle pointed at him. His flight response kicked in and he ran towards the other doorway. Just as he did, though, several shots rang out of the rifle and bullets sprayed across the kitchen. Two bullets ended up hitting Joey in the head and left arm, and his body fell to the ground. The sound of the dog's racing paws could be heard along the floors as the huge dogs had charged into the kitchen but Avery fired several more rounds until they ran off. After the dogs scattered, Avery trudged over to Joey. His body lay face down on the dining room floor, and Avery lifted the rifle barrel to Joey's head before putting two more bullets into his skull. After the execution, Avery rushed back over to the chicken house. He climbed the ladder up to the pink room where the others saw him emerge, covered in blood. Tony and Avery then hauled Charles down to the ground floor while he was still tied up, and they tossed him over to the chickens and made him stay there. 
Then they forced Teresa and Joey Wells to join them as they headed into the main house. Avery handed the rifle to Tony and told him they would find the money they had stashed inside. So they all worked their way through the house until they made their way into the study room. While inside, they rummaged through a few things before hearing one of the dogs growling behind them. One of the Mastiffs stood in the doorway when Tony turned around and aimed the rifle. Several shots rang out and the dog dropped to the floor. Tony then found the other dog that had been gravely wounded earlier. And then he shot the other dog several more times to make sure it was dead. The rifle shots echoed through the house and there was now three dead bodies inside. Avery then dragged Charles into the house. And that's when Charles saw Joey lying dead on the floor. And at that point, he cried out to his dead father with pain in his voice. Avery took him over to his sofa and then threw him down. Strips of bedsheet still bound his hands and arms. And Avery asked him again where they hid the money. But Charles swore they didn't have any. Getting more and more frustrated by the minute, Tony demanded to know where Charles' soldering iron was. Charles couldn't imagine why he wanted to know, but Tony insisted. A soldering iron, if you don't know, is a tool used for heating metal above melting point. Tony was probably looking for something to torture Charles with, hoping he would finally tell them where they had the money stashed. Charles then told Tony that he wouldn't have a soldering iron because they didn't even have electricity in the home. Because of course a soldering iron needs to be plugged into an outlet. Charles realized they weren't going to give up though, so he hoped that telling them the truth would get them to leave. Charles confessed that he did have plenty of money, but it wasn't in cash. Avery had assumed that Charles and Joey didn't trust the banks, but he was totally wrong. Charles in fact did have about $40,000 in the bank. He had made money from his pension, his mother's death, and the sale of his old house in Chicago, but he had kept almost all of it in a savings account and treasury bills. They were paid out $200 a month from his mother's inheritance, and when they all listened to Charles explain his finances, the realization slowly began kicking in. Tony and Avery had seriously fucked up. They realized there actually was no money in the house. It was just a house with brick walls, antiques, books, pornography, a sex room, some drugs, and two men and their dogs just trying to live peacefully off the grid. Now one of the men and two of the dogs were dead. And they had taken everything from Charles and got nothing in return. Meanwhile, Teresa stood and watched in horror as Tony and Avery terrorized the household for nothing. She watched as Charles tried to get up from the sofa, but Tony shoved him back down. Again, he got up and started walking towards Joey's dead body down the hall. Tony pointed the rifle at Charles, demanding that he sit back down, but Charles refused. At this point, he had nothing more to lose. Joey and his beloved dogs were dead, and his home had now become a place of haunted memories. So Charles just kept on walking. And at that point, another shot rang out, and a bullet tore into the back of Charles' skull. He stumbled and fell down to one knee, but he wasn't dead. He tried to regain his strength when Tony approached him and pushed the gun barrel up to Charles' right temple. In execution style, Tony put another bullet into Charles' head. His body stumbled sideways into a nearby bookcase before falling to the floor. After everything, Avery and Tony were still in denial about the money, so they kept on searching through the house, looking they would never find any money. As they ransacked the house, Tony looked over at Charles's body. He noticed that he was still breathing somehow, even after having two bullets put into his head. He lied there in a pool of his own blood, and with each breath, a drizzle of more blood leaked from his wounds. But he was still alive. So Tony walked over to him, aimed the rifle at his head again, 
and fired off three more bullets. Charles was finally dead. And as the body was sprawled out on the floor, Tony noticed a bright silver bracelet on his wrist. It had Charles's name engraved on it. And Tony thought it would be worth some money, so he took it. He figured he might have some other jewelry, too, worth some money. So Tony turned Charles over and took off a silver medallion that hung around his neck and a diamond ring off his finger. Tony was determined not to leave the house empty-handed. Meanwhile, Avery had grabbed a pillowcase and searched around the house for anything that looked valuable. He snagged a pair of handcuffs and also found a loaded twenty-two caliber revolver that was stashed away. After they found all they could, Avery went back over to Charles' dead body, reached in his pocket, and stole the keys to the Jeep. This was the last thing he needed before leaving the Corpsewood Manor for the very last time. And our last sponsor for today is Stamps.com. I've been using Stamps.com for years now. I use it for my businesses, but I also use it personally, especially around the holiday season to mail packages to my family that live out of state. And the last thing I have time for is going to the post office, sitting in traffic, and then standing in a long line, usually out of the building. Well, Stamps.com is here to make your life so much easier. They're your one-stop shop for all shipping and mailing needs. And for more than 20 years, Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses. Get access to USPS and UPS services you need to run your business or for your personal shipping needs right from your computer. There's no lines, no traffic, no hassle. Even save money with major discounts on USPS and UPS shipping rates up to 86% off. Who doesn't like to save money? And you don't need any special equipment, just a regular printer and a computer. And you can have postage printed at any time, which is so nice. You don't have to do it within the post office hours, which are always so, so short. You can do it 24-7, which is super nice. And then just schedule a pickup and somebody will come and pick up your packages for you. This holiday season, trade late nights for silent nights and get started with stamps.com today. Sign up with promo code lights out, one word for a special offer that includes a four week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. There's no long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page and enter code lights out. So while all these brutal murders are unfolding, Teresa and Joey Wells were watching the entire time. They weren't sure if they were complicit or victims. But when Tony told them to keep their mouth shut, they listened. With the loaded rifle still in his hand, Tony ordered them both into his car. Once they were inside, Tony put the car in reverse and backed the car down the dirt road as fast as he could. His hands gripped the wheel tight. But as he sped up, he noticed that he was heading straight toward a tree. He yanked the steering wheel and the car veered off the road into a ditch. So Avery had to pull Charles's Jeep around and tow Tony's car out of the ditch. Once it was free, they sped away from Corpsewood Manor, leaving the four dead bodies inside. The crew got back to Tony's mobile home in the trailer park, and now they needed to lie low and figure out how to get out of town. Tony offered to sell his car to Joey Wells. Joey dug around his pockets before pulling out $7 in cash. It was all he had. Joey told him he could get $68 the next time he saw him. So Tony took the crumpled up dollar bills and handed Joey Wells the keys. With the deal made, Joey Wells and Teresa headed back to Joey's place. Once they got there, Teresa wanted to immediately call the police. But Joey didn't want to rat out his Uncle Tony, so he refused. Joey's mom eventually drove Teresa home, and during the car ride, Teresa spilled the beans about everything that had happened. She told her about the drugs, the murders, and the robbery, but Joey's mom promised her son she wouldn't tell the police. But now they had a problem. They thought Teresa would eventually reach out, 
and contact the police on her own. So Joey's mom had Teresa go and pick up her two-year-old daughter from school. And when they got back to the house, they forced Teresa into a bedroom and locked her inside. And they kept her locked there for four days straight. Then on December 16th, Joey Wells shoved Teresa into his car and took her over to a friend's house. Here, Teresa managed to find a phone and get in contact with her uncle. Meanwhile, Avery and Tony packed up what they had and told their families they were heading to Florida. But really, they were heading to the Mexican border. On the way there, they pulled into a rest stop to sleep for the night. The rest stop was empty, so it was safe to rest there for a while. The next morning, they woke up and noticed another car at the rest stop. Inside the car was U.S. Navy Lieutenant Kirby Phelps, who was sleeping in the front seat. Tony then got an idea. With no one else around besides Avery, Tony grabbed Charles' old 22 revolver from the back seat. He walked over to the other man's car and tapped on the window with the barrel of the gun. Kirby woke up and saw Tony flashing the handgun. Raising his hands, he told Tony he could take whatever he wanted. So Tony yanked open the door, slapped a pair of handcuffs on Kirby, and dragged him out into the woods. It became obvious to Kirby that this wasn't a typical robbery. So when Tony unlocked one of the cuffs to try and lock Kirby to a tree, Kirby actually broke free and punched Tony in the head. Tony briefly stumbled back and then reached for his pistol. He quickly aimed and pulled the trigger several times. Three bullets went into Kirby's head before he dropped to the grass. Tony then stole Kirby's wallet and keys and left him in the woods. When he got back to the parking lot, Tony told Avery to take the Jeep while Tony drove Kirby's car. They drove the Jeep to a hidden spot in the woods and abandoned it. Then they both got into Kirby's car and fled the scene. On December 15th, there was a few men that had gone out into the woods with metal detectors. They had gone out there planning to look for old Civil War relics. But what they found was Kirby's decomposing body with three bullet wounds in his head. He had no ID on him, so when police recovered his body, Kirby was just another John Doe. That same day, a man named Raymond Williams had stopped by Corpsewood Manor. He was there to break the news to Charles and Joey about a mutual friend passing away. When Raymond pulled up to the house, he noticed that the Jeep was gone, so he figured that they had just gone into town to get groceries and supplies. They usually did that about once a month anyways. So Raymond left and came back the next day, but the Jeep was still not there. At this point, he began to think something was wrong. It wasn't like his friends had been gone from Corpsewood for more than a day, and none of the friends had heard that Charles and Joey were going on vacation or anything like that, so they should be home. So Raymond got out of his car and walked up to the house. First, he noticed the front door was open, and when he took a peek inside, he spotted a few bullet holes that riddled the walls. They also smelled rancid, like death. He immediately left and called police. Several deputies from the nearby sheriff's department arrived and discovered the grisly scene. They found Joey's body near the south entrance and Charles' body in the next room. Both were found face down in their own blood, and more blood was found across the house. And Charles' arms were still bound with bed sheets. Their two mastiff's bodies were tucked into the corner of another room near a wood stove. Supposedly, the smell of death and rotting food was so strong inside the house that investigators had to take breaks outside just to get some fresh air. The deputies also took note that both Charles and Joey seemed to had not had a shower in a while. Charles even had grown one of his toenails over an inch long. After discovering the scene, the deputies then go out and sweep the rest of the property. And at the same time, the abandoned Jeep was discovered over in Tallulah, Louisiana. Tallulah police called the sheriff's station in Georgia to report the vehicle as they had found 22 caliber bullets inside the Jeep. 
Kirby, Charles, and Joey had all been killed with 22 caliber bullets. The police thought it was plausible that there were one or more interstate killers on the loose and that, most likely, they were probably in the victim's stolen car. On December 16th, Teresa was able to finally reach a telephone and call her uncle after being locked away in Joey Wells' house for four days. She then called the nearby sheriff's department and they quickly picked her up and Joey for questioning. They told the sheriff everything that had happened and with no delay, arrest warrants were issued for both Avery and Tony. At this point, Avery and Tony were far away from Georgia, so a national manhunt began. But on the run, Avery and Tony were having a very rough time. They had reached Texas, but had run out of every last penny. Not only that, but they couldn't agree on what to do next. They eventually realized that they wouldn't agree with each other, so they decided to split up and go their separate ways. Avery ended up hitchhiking all the way back to Georgia, where he called his mom on a payphone, and he desperately asked her to come pick him up. By coincidence, police rolled up to her house right after she got off the phone with her son. She told them he was waiting for her at a gas station, so they headed down that way and picked him up. They then took him into the station where he made a full confession. He even showed them a U.S. Navy ID he had stolen off Curvy's body. Police were finally able to put a name to the John Doe that was discovered in the woods near the rest stop. As for Tony, he spent a few days alone before also heading back to Georgia. He ended up running out of gas in Tennessee about a mile and a half from the Georgia border. It was a rainy night and the car had sputtered out of gas and came to a halt. He decided to get out of the car and walk in the rain to the closest bar. There he spotted a police car in the parking lot. Tony was starving, tired, and soaking wet, and he couldn't take it anymore. So he found the officer inside the bar, approached him, and said, Go ahead and take me in. As you can imagine, the officer was like, Huh? He had no idea who Tony was, but he would soon find out. Tony then confessed to everything he had done. But when the officer checked with the station, Tony had no warrant out for his arrest because he was in Tennessee. So the officer drove him across the border where he found out that Georgia had a warrant out for Tony's arrest. But there was a catch. When they finally had Tony, Georgia police were worried if it was legal for a Tennessee officer to transport Tony across state lines. So they made him drive Tony all the way back across the border. They then had Tony walk a mile and a half until he got into Georgia. This way they could say that Tony got into Georgia on his own free will. At this point, the local police finally took him into custody. The case quickly caught the media's attention though. As for Avery, they're going to try him as an adult. On top of this, the prosecutor is going to seek a death penalty sentence. In the end, he accepted a plea deal and he pleaded guilty and he was given life in prison. Tony ended up pleading not guilty and he actually went to trial. His entire defense relied on rumors that Charles and Joey were in fact devil worshipers and he hoped that the small town jury would believe him when he said he was only protecting himself from demons inside of the Corpsewood Manor. He claimed that the furniture was glowing and strange things moved in the shadows. When investigators had searched the manor, they didn't find any sort of paranormal activity, but they did find three vials with the label LSD-25 on them. One was full and another was half full, and the last one was completely empty. The defense argued that the wine that Charles had given Tony and Avery was drugged with LSD, and it caused them to have a mental break, and then in turn, forced them to murder the men. The prosecution tested the wine bottles, but they found no traces of LSD. Do you think uh, LSD would ever play into a murder? Like, do you ever think you would have a bad enough trip to like... I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think... I don't... I mean, I guess I've never... If you had enough, 
maybe you could maybe. completely lose your mind, but even then, I don't you, know. You, I, I don't know like if you, you would, would be already to... have to have the disposition of wanting to murder right. someone yeah. to then take a drug and murder someone, right? Yeah, I don't think that just by taking it would all of a sudden invoke this thought or feeling to go and do it. And I think maybe what his defense was doing is since they knew it's like these Georgia folk yeah. who are a part of the jury, they're like, okay, yeah, the Satanists also, they're on LSD, this crazy drug that people don't really understand yet. So they're trying to, Oh, make totally. It like it. They're totally trying to use that to their advantage by yeah. like, Oh, well it could have happened. We don't know. Yeah. We don't understand this crazy yeah. drug yeah. that all yeah. the hippies are taking. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Cause how many hippie murders have, were there? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Totally. I mean, it's they're trying to take advantage of of this jury and yeah. get them to believe that Tony was almost doing the community a service by taking out these devil worshippers. Right. Yeah, and, they were nuisances yeah, out in the right. woods. Yeah, they're evil, doing all this evil shit, mm -hmm. drugging people and stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, they were really trying very hard to persuade the jury of his innocence, but it would crumble once Avery took the stand to testify. As he then opened up about the plans they had set up long before they ever even went to Corpsewood. In fact, they had both talked about killing and robbing the couple. Plus, Joey Wells testified and told the court that Tony had told him he was going to live in a devil worshipper's house two days before they headed up there. So it was very clear that these murders were premeditated. The jury found Samuel Tony West guilty on all counts and actually sentenced him to execution by electric chair but his conviction was overturned soon after, as there was an issue with the indictment that the judge had ignored. So the second time around, Tony decided it would be smarter for him to just go ahead and plead guilty as opposed to going to trial because he realized that chances of being found guilty again was very high. So because he pled guilty, he avoided the electric chair and he agreed to a plea deal, which he pleaded guilty for a life sentence. Avery also got life in prison, and in fact, he ended up getting three consecutive life terms. So they were both going to be in prison till their very last day. So the strange and very violent case of Corpse of Manor finally came to an end. Today, Tony serves a sentence in Wilcox State Prison, and Avery is currently incarcerated at Coffee Correctional Facility in Georgia. As for Charles's Corpsewood Manor. The three-story chicken house was burned down by arsonists, and the main house was burned soon after. A few brick arches and debris remain in the middle of the forest, but nothing else is around for miles. Since its destruction, the vegetation has grown back and reclaimed most of the land. Charles's family allows people to go and view the property at their own risk, but the most you can see now is chunks of rubble covered in vines. The manor mostly lives on in myths and legends, and the true horror story is over. But as people dug into the case, some mysteries emerged and countless rumors spread. Apparently something strange had occurred in the main house on the day of the attacks, when Charles had wept over Joey's dead body when they had first gotten into the house. Supposedly he said, and this is quote, I asked for this. Not many know exactly what he meant by this, but it's up to interpretation. What do you think he meant by that? I asked for this. Yeah, isn't that crazy? I think it can be taken a couple different ways. How I read it, which I don't know. There's a lot of takes on this because it's kind of a vague statement. Yeah. But someone's last this. words. Uh, I mean, you could assume he's in 
utter shock. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, Everything I mean, people gone. say all sorts of things right. when you're dealing with trauma. And I mean, he's seeing his dead partner right there. Yeah, like, but isn't that crazy? He took it on himself. He's like, yeah, I did this to myself almost. And I, I don't know. I think maybe he had a maybe he was considering like his lifestyle is like, yeah, I wanted to go fuck off into the woods. But I didn't realize, you know, maybe inviting every stranger who comes along uh, wasn't a really good idea. Maybe he was considering that or that, ma- that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I think I mean, we have to remember too, like he was so open to people coming, everybody yeah. and, and and inviting them in and he never forced anybody to do anything. But the fact that it was this, you know, it, it's almost like he created this fairy tale in a way as weird as that sounds like he created this place where you can go and be yourself and do whatever you want and you know people can have these really crazy experiences i mean you can only imagine with all the lsd around and you're in the middle of the woods i mean i can can only imagine the stories that we have you know we'll never know that 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 went on there yeah during their time and so and the fact that there was a sign-in book yeah kind of goes to show like yeah come on in it's almost this like, is like this a, hotel yeah. that you come to that you don't pay for, for free. And like here's our homemade wine. Yeah. You want a trip? Yeah. You want to have sex? You. Yeah. It's just everything's you on do the do it all. I, I really think that that is kind of what maybe you thought is like, I should have been more careful yeah. in a way. Like I opened this up to this possibility that maybe somewhere along the way, the wrong person would come through. Yeah. And... I think he had maybe advantage. considered it before even because he did have a 22 revolver inside his house, right? So maybe right. he had at one point considered, maybe I do need to protect myself, even though he was so open and welcoming. Maybe he had yeah. doubts about it, you know? Well, not to mention his this portrait of himself that he had. Yes. That he had done a few months before his murder. And in the portrait, Charles is shown gagged with several bullet wounds in his head. That's That's what's crazy to me is like, that's that's nuts because there are some people that suggest that maybe through some of the divination rituals he was doing that maybe he like had a vision or or saw his own death right before it happened which is possible right i mean it is a very specific thing to be like not only did i maybe have a vision yeah let me hire an artist to i'll put this in my house that's so strange yeah that's super strange that really makes me think like maybe they were maybe they were tapping into something there or something i mean that's just so bizarre what are the chances of like just guessing that? yeah like no that's guessing crazy. your death having it made into a portrait and then it being scary accurate like, yeah and then like some people are like oh i have premonitions about i'm gonna die in a car accident one day or something like that and yeah that's reasonable a lot of people die in car right. accidents every day so it's not you know you could kind of guess. It's specific, but it's not like so specific where you're like, because like, I mean, I think car accidents are like the one of the number one ways to die. Yeah. Like statistical. Right. Uh, it would speaking. be different if you were like, I'm going to die in my Toyota Corolla on October 30th. Go off the road, hit a pole. Yeah. If you were that specific, he was that specific yeah, about it. He's like, I'm going to die by getting shot in the head. That's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes, it also lends to the fact that, you know, the deputies that discovered the bodies and searched the property in the house, they reported that they felt like they were being watched, which is interesting. Yeah. 
Um, there was also people who went and stole antiques from the house after this all happened. And when they did, they were struck with horrible luck. So is it possible that like, you know, the objects they took were cursed or, I mean, if you believe in the paranormal and you look at a lot of hauntings and things like that, especially places where horrific things happen, right? There right. is, you know, an imprint left over and, you know, all that negativity and that evil that was all there and not, not necessarily on Charles and Joey's part, but Tony and Avery bringing that evil there and carrying out these evil acts. If there's something beyond explanation that was left over and yes, yeah. yeah, sort of imprint. landed in these I mean, objects and in the building. And that's, that's the result of the paranormal activity you're seeing. Right. Yeah. I'm more of a skeptic on that front, you know? Um, but Hey, I mean, is it possible? Is it out of the realm of possibility? No, it's not just the same as, I don't know. We were talking about religion earlier. Right. And it's like, yeah, some things sound crazy to other people, but it's good to have an open mind. I am way more skeptical on the Which paranormal I'm sure there's tons stuff. of people like, yes, somebody <laughs> that's, Josh is too believing. Yeah. Which so, is also a reason why I thought you'd be great for the shows. Cause I think it's good to have both perspectives. Cause I think what's interesting is that I come from a religious background and I became like the most skeptical person when I left religion. Like I was basically like a self-proclaimed atheist. But then after that, I had a, and this is going in a totally different direction, but I had a series of, of things and just sort of awakenings is what I call them. And, you know, I became a spiritual person again, or I realized I was never not spiritual. It's just, I was sort of believing in the wrong things. And, you know, it kind of has led me into this world of paranormal and experiencing some of that firsthand, which I truly believe I've experienced some paranormal activity that's unexplainable. That makes me like, I believe in, there are things that cannot be explained. And obviously I try to put a theory or a specific thing to it to try to explain it. But again, we don't know for sure. I have no way to prove it to you that it's this, or like in this case that it was this imprint of this negative energy. I just, that's just the way I kind yeah. of understand it and explain it, but it could yeah, be completely the, wrong. That's the core concept of belief, right? It's like, you can't really explain it, but yeah. there's something there and I'm not too far off. Cause you know, I, like I said, I was raised uh, Catholic pretty, yeah. pretty yeah. deep in there right? right? for like 12 years, Catholic school. Right. So I also, you know, had a crisis of faith and what is this? All the, all the things that I've been fed is everything a lie, you know? And then yeah. you go, I kind of, made the same route where you go hardcore like now nah, every this was all a lie and i've been kind of scared you almost go like bit. through this like anger yes, like yeah. phase where you're like fuck the church fuck god right, and you're like yeah. and i became <laughs> i became very i was like death metal like just <laughs> just as heavy dark as i could get yeah, that's yeah. where i was for a while yeah until i sort of found the light again <laughs> yeah no and then <laughs> it's I, weird i kind of came back to it too after a while like i don't uh, I'm not, you know, I don't really abide by any religion. Yeah. I'm not a, a front runner and like, that's a new concept. Yeah. Or like, but I, I think everyone has their own uh, somewhat of a spiritual element that they tap into. Even if you're an atheist, I think, you know, you could say, oh gosh, we're getting into, uh, Josh and I are talking about some deep shit yeah. right now. Uh, but I mean, you could get into, you know, even atheists, what they, they're men of science, right? The big bang, you know, this is what I believe in. So it's a, well, not believe in, but cause that's a real thing that happened. But 
I don't know. We or all is have it? Our, or is it? Yeah, who knows? I believe that's just the theory of what I don't. I believe that. I mean, I think science can explain things up to a point, but up at some point, point yep. at some point, you have to believe in something. Even I think even, that's what I think. At I least, think like, even like Stephen Hawking's, as deep as he would go into quantum physics and crazy yeah. shit like that, he got to a point where it's like you you explain so much shit that things don't make sense anymore. It, it, we don't have to get into quantum yeah, physics. We, we could do a whole episode <laughs> yeah. on on that that whole concept, man. I have a lot to say about about Stephen Hawking and like just where where he went to and with some of the things he believed. Because I think even some of the most scientific minds of you know, what you end up finding is that they are far more spiritual than they ever Absolutely. led on to, or, or what they found was like it's like you get to the this point, and then there's like this great beyond that's like science can't yet explain mathematics can't yet explain and like you're just like well well, what is this yeah and even the things that they do explain are still confusing as hell like the universe is constantly expanding and you're like they've proven that that's real but why right nobody you can't even explain for it yeah we don't know you know there's just so much shit that we can get into maybe we cracked open uh, yeah a, a big can of worms here but no it's it's interesting too i mean even with this just like the fact that there is some sort of haunted element to this place now and people, I mean, if you go on YouTube, you can find people going out to Corpsewood Manor still to this day. Yeah. And like, you know, people go out there for paranormal investigation or, or whatever, you know, ghost hunting, whatever you want to call it. And I mean, people, people report lots of things. People, you know, hear gunshots, sounds of barking dogs, which is interesting. Um, some even claim to see glowing eyes. of One of the dogs roaming through the nearby woods and I mean, again, these are what people are reporting and, you know, everybody's experience is subjective and can be looked at objectively. So, but it is interesting that maybe I, I, I truly think that when something like this happens and most, you know, when something negative happens, that there seems to be this residual effect that's sort of left behind. Sure. And you know what that is i don't know is it energy is it spirit what is it that's left behind but there's something that remains living in a sense there that's uh, that creates this activity or maybe it's or maybe it's not even maybe it's something subconsciously i mean who knows it could be something that's like we just sort of tune into it's like a radio signal when you go out to this area that your brain's like tuning into this radio yeah, signal we're almost manifesting yeah you're almost like there. picking up tidbits that's kind of just out there in the yeah. ether or whatever you want to I mean, call hey, it so. i'm not i'm a skeptical but i'm not super stubborn on this you know that's I can, good i i do think there's m- much that we can't explain yeah, there's, yeah. There's and, and i get it like science is science is very important and being able to prove things scientifically is very important but like is like we have discovered these natural laws and all these things but it's like i think they're you have to remember too like science is always changing too it's always. like science is never concrete because there's always potential for uh, new discoveries and and i think that's what makes science exciting and it's interesting that charles did have this scientific background yeah. like he was so heavy into the science and then he kind of like paired that up with satanism to yeah. like sort let's, of create his own the, and let's then, get out the tarot cards yeah and he was and like very into the occult and um he had all these occult relics and images all over his, his house and and he had like pink gargoyle yeah, uh, above his his door at the manor, which was interesting, and he also uh, when he built the manor, he uh, he built rounded walls first, 
because the idea is that you know negative energy can't hide in a rounded space as opposed to if it if the house has corners the darkness always lies in the corners i've heard of this yeah and so he built his his like house his main house to have rounded walls to try to eliminate that so, so he's very he was very very deep into this stuff um so it makes me think like we talk about people like john d and individuals who really dive into divination and and tarot and stuff and so many people are so skeptical of this stuff but like which i understand because there's tons of people that are just like sort of fraudulent about it and like charge yeah. people like there's so much like scam scammers around it that i think people it gets this negative connotation put on it and stereotype put on it but i do believe that there there is a reason the stuff has been around for so long and i do believe that there is something to it and those that practice it purely tap into something that we don't understand they may not even understand but through these things they're able to these rituals through this knowledge that's been passed down they're able to do things that defy all explanation that's the, that's the best way i can put it you have you've basically explained what religion is to some degree right yeah. that's that's the same basic same. core concept right mm -hmm. these things that are passed down this knowledge that you know some people have experienced things while others have it and the same thing selling snake oil right all these con men get attached to it same thing with religion right yeah so yeah it's super interesting man yeah well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Super interesting one. And I feel like you and I could sit here all day. We're already like several <laughs> hours into this. Yeah. Which is great. I'm so excited to have you on the show. And hopefully everyone out there has enjoyed Austin, his perspective. I think it's just going to add so much to the show moving forward. And let us know your thoughts on, on, on this particular case. Do you think that there is, do you think this was purely a robbery and that they really were after the money? I truly think they were after the money. I think they thought, you know, what better way to hide your wealth and, you know, be off the grid and, you know, act like you're in, you know, poor and, you know, you, you live off the land, but they thought they were hiding tons of money and, and treasures there. And in fact, it was all in the bank. And I just think they were two stupid dudes that, thought they had an opportunity to try to get some easy money, potentially get away with the crime, take over the manor and everything was, I think they're just young, stupid, didn't really think through things. I mean, no. clearly their background shows they don't, there's not a lot of intelligence there. I think they've kind of came from this rough, rough childhood. And also drug addicts. I don't think they, you know, once you get, too. you know, yeah. suffer from addiction, I don't think you're thinking too far out it's like how do i get my next fix where, yeah. where do i go oh they have they have free wine and drugs up at this point yeah okay that's, yeah that's i thought i thought they were i think they thought they were going to be more crafty about it i think they were thinking they could like sort of set it up so that they could they were going to mastermind it and make it look like it was not just a blatant robbery and murder i think i think they had maybe a different plan in mind and it just all went wrong yeah. and just jumped and the gun and i don't think they were smart enough for it either didn't think through it yeah, yeah they just they didn't have the capacity to really think this one through and ultimately i'm so glad they didn't because they you know charles joey they got the justice that they absolutely deserved and i'm glad that both tony and avery are serving life terms because they deserve that absolutely I mean, absolutely deserve that i and thinking back you know how they had to take him back across the border yeah man all the logistics of all that bullshit i know like, think about that they almost they like knew this I guy know. did it they're like 
fuck. We're going to take you back. You're going <laughs> to yeah, have to walk across. Hopefully you show up here, you know? <laughs> I know. I can't even imagine what that must have looked like. Right. But yeah, this was a truly crazy case. We'd love to know your thoughts in the comments you're watching on YouTube. If you're watching on Spotify, while you're there, make sure you're following us. We really appreciate it. But yeah, I'll link Austin's information in the description as well. He'll be back next month for another episode and then back in January for or forever, hopefully. Yeah. As long as you want to come back. But as long as no <laughs> supernatural shit starts. You going never know in here. here though, man. You never know. Annabelle's pissed that you now took her spot and she's she's gonna start start looking at you over there. Yeah, she's still over there in the corner. <laughs> but thanks again for joining us. I'll see you next week. And until then, lights out, everybody. <laughs>